take a seat. Well, it's a very well-known passage uh, from the Gospels. In uh, John chapter 16, verse 33, our Lord Jesus said that in the world, you, uh, in this case the disciples, we, we would have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. The truth is, not only in John 16, 33, but throughout the whole of the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that Christians, that God's people, face tribulation, trials. It is a, a well-established reality. It is an undeniable witness throughout church history that God's people even though they have been made new creatures in Christ, experience trials, afflictions, troubles. We have face all these things in our lives. We face them as any other unregenerate human being. Firstly, because we are a part of this fallen world, and it is a world that has sickness, and has strife ever since our forefather, our first father, Adam, sinned. But we also face them, particularly for the faith we profess. For our commitment to God and his word. And also this reality is unequivocally testified and witnessed in scripture, in the New Testament, and throughout church history. One of the wonderful things about having traditional hymnology, about singing old hymns, is that they convey something of this. That so often newer, uh, more modern hymns and choruses seem to not have. I was looking through some of these uh, hymns uh, in our hymn book and outside of our hymn book as well that speak about trials and tribulations with the metaphor of a storm, of tribulation, of, of a tempest. How many we have. It's Horatius Spafford, it is well with my soul. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. It is be still my, my soul. The winds and the waves, the trials and the tribulations, the things that, are fall, that, that seem to surround us, they still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. It's that hymn, anonymous uh, hymn by, by someone who is anonymous. How firm a foundation. When through the deep waters you call me, to, uh, call, I called you to go, is speaking in, from scripture here. The rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. Then you have some of those more American uh, hymns. Master, the tempest is raging. I believe it is American. The billows are tossing high. The sky is overshadowed with blackness. No shelter nor help is nigh. The winds and the waves, says the chorus, shall obey thy will. Peace be still. Whether the wrath of the storm-tossed sea, or demons, or men, or wherever, wherever it be, no waters can swallow the ship where lies the master of ocean and earth and skies. So many 
so many we could look upon in these hymns storms tempests uh, billows deep waters they all represent something that we all know to be true of our own experience we suffer trials and tribulations here we have challenges and hardships in our earthly lives but they also express the enduring hope and faith of those who have the Lord by their side. In the midst of trials, we have this one thing that we can latch on, a rock of ages that clefts for us. And that is the source of our comfort in the midst of these things. If, even though we are not immune from storms of life, the source of our comfort is the confidence, the trust, uh, that even as we are shaken and tossed to and fro by the billows, we are, our feet are standing in the rock that is higher than us, as the psalmist says. Above all, our comfort comes from knowing that the God whom we serve, the God whom we trust, is a faithful God who keeps all of his promises. And today, as we consider this passage, this moving, uh, uh, breathtaking account of the shipwreck that Paul faced, the fourth one in his lifetime, at least four that we know of, we can rest assured that the same God who preserved Paul's life and all of the other uh, sailors and soldiers and shipwrecked uh, uh, people in that boat is the God who preserves us. So today's title uh, for the sermon is Surviving Storms. And I wish to highlight three points. Number one, stewardship in the storm from verse 27 to 32. Number two, strength through sustenance. That's the second part, 33 to verse 38. And then finally, salvation amidst the shipwreck, 39 to 44. So the main emphasis of this account, I believe, the reason why we have it in our Bibles is to look and see God's faithfulness in fulfilling, God, in fulfilling his promises to the Apostle Paul. And we see that, for example, right at the beginning. In the way that the ship was saved from being uh, torn apart by the storm and the tempest. By this hurricane-like uh, um, trial that they faced. They wanted to abandon the ship. And they were thwarted. It was the 14th night of them being uh, in this raging sea. Fourteen days and fourteen nights they were there. It was about midnight. And the ship was continuing to be battered, tossed to and fro. They were at the entrance. Again, it might be helpful for you to have your, your, um, your maps uh, that are helpfully so often in, a, in the backs of our Bibles. Uh, they were there at the entrance of the Adriatic Sea. And the storm was raging. But they started to hear the, the bellows, the, the, the waves crashing. And if you're a sailor, uh, you know what that means. There is land somewhere close by. There is land approaching. And if you look at your maps, 
the place where they are there. In, uh, they left from, uh, from Cyrus, from, uh, from Fair Havens. They wanted to get Phoenix. Uh, uh, but then a storm came and they sailed past Clauda. And for 14 days they were in the high sea, in the Mediterranean Sea. And now they are there at the entrance of the uh, Ionian or Adriatic Sea. And they are arriving in an unknown land. We know it to be Malta. And this is an interesting thing. I, you remember last week I said this, that uh, historians of naval uh, uh, travels, uh, they, are, they are very... Uh, they commend Luke as a, a very careful historian in the fact that he records things that are uh, very accurate. One such thing that is very accurate, and again, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I did these calculations and that I, that I researched the primary sources. I'm taking this from, from uh, someone else. One thing that is apparently very accurate here is that 14 days would be just about the time that it would take them to go from uh, Cyprus, where they were, from Fair Havens, to the place where they are now. Uh, people who studied, uh, study how sea currents work, they say that a boat in, a, uh, in a, a very strong tempest like this one was will travel just about 36 miles every day, every 24 hours. Just so happens that that is exactly the amount of mileage that would have taken them to this place in 14 days. 14 days journey. And according to these calculations, uh, they are exactly there, about three miles out by midnight from uh, the harbor in Malta. This harbor in Malta uh, has sub subsequently been named. If you go there to, on, uh, on holidays, uh, you can Google or you can find it. There's a St. Paul's Harbor. That's the harbor where Paul landed, the, the, the bay where Paul landed. So that's, again, another proof of how uh, accurate the, the account that Luke provides us is. Another accurate thing is the process uh, that they used to estimate how far uh, uh, they were from land. They used, uh, here it, it's called uh, uh, sounding the soundings and the, the fathoms. It's just basically a plumb line. Well, we know we're getting close to shore. Throw a plumb line. How far down are we? Okay, we're in about an hour. Throw it again. And they realize they're getting closer and closer to shore. But that's not good news, is it? It's not something to be uh, over, uh, over joyful with because it's midnight. You don't want to be getting close to shore at midnight, especially when you don't know where you are exactly. Especially when you don't know what, what, what kind of shore it is. Is it just a, a nice, uh, soft, gentle bank that the boat will just uh, get stuck in? Is it uh, the cliff, cliffs of Dover and you're going to be plumbed, uh, you're going to be uh, squished against the, the, the cliffs? So they started praying that they would come. I love how Matthew, Matthew Henry uh, encourages us 
to rest on divine providence in times of trouble. He says this, when those that fear God walk in darkness and have no light, yet let them not say the Lord has forsaken us or our God has forgotten us, but let them do as these mariners did, cast anchor and wish for the day and be assured that the day will dawn. Hope is an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast, entering in, in, into that within the veil. Hold fa fast by that. Think not of putting to sea again, but abide by Christ and wait till the daybreak and the shadows flee away. You see, because the mariners, they, 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 they threw the anchors out. They threw them at the stern, which again, any uh, person with, a, with, a, with knowledge about how these things work, they, they, they would uh, be pleased to say that Luke is providing a very accurate account. You throw the anchors, if, you're, if, the, if the current and if the wind is, uh, is bringing you to the shore and you don't want to end up there, you don't throw the anchors through the, the sides, you don't throw the anchor through the front, through the bow, you throw the anchor through the stern. stern. Why? Because if you th throw it through the bow, the boat is going to be uh, thrown around but if you, if you throw, toss it through the stern through the back the boat is going to be held but facing the shore and that's what you want and that's what they did they are experienced mariners sailors but yet they were so very cowardly we read there don't we they, they had a sense that perhaps they could escape by themselves so while no one was looking while no one was paying any attention, they got the skiff, the, the lifeboat that was uh, brought into the boat, uh, as we saw last week. And under the pretense of putting out some more anchors uh, from the prow, uh, the, they, they were trying to escape. And here Paul, uh, knowing what they were doing, he goes to the commander, he goes to the, to the centurion, and he says, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And for the first time, the centurion actually gives, uh, gives attention to what Paul is saying. And they cut the skiff and they let it go. We should note, shouldn't we, that God had promised to save the man on board of that ship. But it, that in itself did not suggest to Paul, even knowing that promise, that he was to remain uh, that he was to be uh, lethargical or do nothing about his deliverance. There is a wonderful sense, and we'll speak a little bit more about it, a wonderful sense here of human responsibility and, and divine sovereignty, of trusting God's promises, but actually doing something with those promises in mind. Paul is here presented uh, in, the, in this chapter as, as a, a center figure. He's shouting instructions, he's warning people, he's... he's, uh, he's telling people to eat. He's, he's giving advice. Paul, as a prisoner, he's not uh, just going, well, God has said that I'm going to be okay, so you do, you do whatever you want. No. Let us not fall into that trap as Christians of trusting God's promises and allowing those promises to be excuses for our inactivity. It is a very graphic uh, account, isn't it? 
and you think things are getting better, but immediately things seem to, to, to go worse again. One can almost hear the roar and the howling of the winds uh, in the storm. And we can hear also the, the shouting, the pleading of the Apostle Paul with the people. But then we have strength through sustenance from verse 33 onwards. Uh, Luke yet records another intervention of the apostle. They had been without eating for 14 days. And I, I spoke about this last week. I believe that they were without eating, not because of any fasting or anything. So it's very hard to keep food in when, when you're being tossed to and fro. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been seasick in, uh, in a boat and been seasick. You, you really don't, cannot keep any food in. So probably they were not very uh, famished. They were not famished or anything. But they were weak. And Paul insisted with them. Go, take some food. Let us eat. You need to be strong to swim. It doesn't seem like immediately obvious why the Apostle Paul, this great spiritual man of God, would be giving this kind of advice, does it? You need to eat. And perhaps so often we, as Christians, and I speak uh, as a, a pastor, as a, so often we want to give the spiritual advice. And sometimes the, spiritual, uh, the, spirit, the best thing spiritually for someone is giving good uh, common sense advice. Go and drink some wine for your, for your... Nowadays that's not medically sound, but in Paul's day when he turns to Timothy and he says, drink some wine for your problems, uh, it was medically sound. Brothers and sisters, if, you, if someone needs your advice, and if, if what they really need is some rest, to sleep, that is good advice that you can give as a good Christian. If they need uh, common sense advice, you should give it. That's not being un, unspiritual. Look at what Paul did. And again, we see that, that tension we see that uh, paradox uh, between uh, uh, God's providence, but the means of, of how God uh, uh, accomplishes his providence, how the God, God has promised something, but God also ordains the means to fulfill that promise. And the ordinary means are there. You're going to be saved. Yes, that's God's promise. But the ordinary way that you will be saved is you're going to have to swim, swim. And you cannot swim if you don't have any power left in you, any strength. So eat. Faith. Faith does not uh, jettison practical details as eating, as, as taking care of our bodies, as taking medicine. Faith. Trust in God does not jettison practical things. It is, no le it, is, uh, it is not being unspiritual. It is common sense. Elijah needed to be fed. And he was fed by the ravens. And no later he, he, he wasn't allowed to eat. That he, he, he fell asleep. And he started getting better. Paul knew this. All great 
Men and women of God have known this. We, we trust God, but we also are open to being used by God in accomplishing his purposes. And then Paul sets an example. Seeking to encourage them, he takes bread. I, 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 I find it interesting that the language here quite, quite uh, closely mimics the language of the institution of the Lord's Supper. It has nothing to do with, uh, with communion. Uh, it is a regular, ordinary meal. Uh, but again, is Luke trying to uh, shadow something? As so often was the case uh, in the account of Paul's travel to Rome, uh, Jesus as well, just before he arrived in Jerusalem, he, he did uh, have a meal, uh, and here Paul also has one. I don't think these things are just coincidental. I think they are there by design. But it is a regular meal. It wasn't the Lord's Supper. It, although certainly Paul might have celebrated fellowship with, uh, with uh, uh, Luke and with uh, Aristarchus, uh, the two believers there on board with him. But what we see here is Paul's character. Paul's character is clearly shown in this section. Let me use the words of, uh, of that uh, great preacher, John Stott, speaking of the, the character of the Apostle Paul as one who combines spirituality, sanity, faith, and words. He says, he believed that God would keep his promises and had the courage to say grace in the presence of a crowd of hard bitten pagans but his trust and godliness did not stop him seeing either that the ship should not take risks with the onset of winter or that the sailors must not be allowed to escape or that the hungry crew and passengers had to eat to survive or later that he needed to gather wood to keep the beach fire burning what a man he was a man of god and of action a man of, of the spirit and of common sense Brothers and sisters, wouldn't we all want to follow on in Paul's footsteps? A man of God and of action. A man or a woman of God and of action. A man or a woman of the spirit and of common sense. And before we move to the la last section, let me just say this. We might as well reflect in our own personal lives when we go out and dine with brothers and sisters in a restaurant. Uh, the thing of giving, saying, giving thanks in a public setting. I... I think it is not wrong. We should give thanks, even in a public setting. Not ostentatiously, not, not in that very obnoxious way that sometimes Christians tend to do it, uh, almost parading their spirituality. But no, in a, in a, in a refrained, uh, discreet kind of way. Give thanks to God. And people will see you give thanks to God. It is a powerful testimony of our faith in a very secular age. And la lastly, the last section that we'll consider is from verse 39 to 44. Safety or salvation amongst sh amidst the ship's shipwreck. We find there, don't we, that uh, the day had dawned, that finally there was day. And that the, the words must have come fr from someone's mouth. As the day was breaking, someone was looking and you hear the shout, Land! Land! I see land! At the break of dawn. And how hopeful was that? 
but they still needed to, to get there. So they loosened the, the anchors, their, uh, their, they put their, their, their anchors down, they leave them there, they, they, they left the, the small main uh, sail to, to be pushed into the, into the bay that they had just seen. And they go. But then the ship runs aground again. It's, it's this going and coming. It's, it's almost movie, Hollywood-like kind of tension. It seems like everything uh, is going well at one point and everything goes wrong the next. But they run aground. And now they're in a, in a, in a tight spot, caught between a rock and a hard place, almost literally. Because now they're running aground, but the waves are still there. The tempest is still going. It might have probably has uh, diminished significantly by now, but it's still a tempest. And, and now the boat is stuck in the, in the, in the sand bed, and the, and the waves are crashing in the back. And, and the, boat, boat, the, the ship is being broken into pieces from the stern. So what do you do? Well, the soldiers know what they wanted to do. They were under uh, clear orders to bring this, the prisoners to Rome, to take the prisoners to Rome. If they failed to do that, and we find this happening in, this, in the Gospels as well, and we find that even in the book of Acts, uh, in, other, in, in other episodes in the book of Acts, if a Roman uh, uh, soldier failed to bring a prisoner to, to, to judgment, he was liable for the, the crime that those prisoners had committed. He was liable to, of, of death. Why do you think the centurion in Philippi, uh, the, the, jail, uh, the, the jailer in Philippi, was going to take a, uh, his life? He thought that the prisoners escaped. He was, they were under his care. He's going to die. Might as well die now and not face the, the shame and the punishing of the Romans, who were quite brutal and barbaric when, they, when it came down to punishing these soldiers, knowing that they were risking losing uh, the prisoners and risking their own lives, well, the next best thing is to kill them. And they, that's what they were intending to do. But the centurion, no. The centurion wanted to save Paul, so he stopped them. He ordered those that could swim to throw themselves into the sea to swim. And those that were unable to swim, they were having that didn't know how to swim, to wait. The, the boat is being broken into pieces. Just grab whatever you can, and eventually the, the waves will bring you to shore. But what matters is that God's promise was indeed fulfilled. The ship was destroyed by the violence of the sea that was promised, but the passengers were all saved, all 270, uh, 276 souls on board they were spared from demise through the bitterness of shipwreck at sea paul emerges for us again as a man of courage of trust of faith and the word of god again proves to be true can you imagine being one of those uh, soldiers or one of those prisoners, or one of those sailors, as they get into the, into the land, as they get, get into, the, into the beach, as they arrive there, they must have been saying, you know what? What that guy, what that guy said, that Jew, 
that Paul said, it came true. His word was true. He was right. He said that this would happen and it happened. God keeps his word and that is a witness. Grass withers, the flower fades, but God's word remains forever. Isaiah 55 says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is reliable. God's word is established. And we see that in this marvelous incident. Peter says the word of God abides forever. Jesus said your word is truth. In the book of Malachi, God says, try me, test me. See if these things I say are not true. Will you test God? Will you try Will you trust? It's a wonderful passage that shows us that the God whom we serve today has been consistently a, God, uh, a promise-keeping God and that we can trust in him in our own storms, in our own trials, in our own tempests. And I, I, I would hazard a guess that if I was to ask any of you any of you this morning from the youngest to the oldest all of us would have something in our lives that we would qualify as a trial as a, a trouble as a tribulation there are there are trials and tribulations and this passage teaches us to trust God to trust God's grace and faithfulness to keep his promises The section that we just considered tells us of the sinking ship, but it tells us of God's preservation, of God's saving, of God's faithfulness in keeping his promises. His promises, it doesn't mean that we will not face, uh, that there will be an absence. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you, there will be an absence of trouble. Quite the contrary. Quite the contrary. It is precisely because we are Christians. It is precisely in the midst of trials and tribulations that we see God's faithfulness. It is in sickness that we learn to lean upon God. It is in weakness that we learn to trust God's strength. Just as Joseph in Egypt, uh, the, the Sunday school uh, has been going through the, the story of Daniel, and just like Daniel in the, Daniel, in the lion's den, like Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the, in the furnace, just like Paul in the shipwreck. These things were trials. We, we read them and we, we almost take all the personality out of it, the human element. But think, how you, would you feel in, the, in a 14-day in a uh, storm like Paul was, just about to be shipwrecked? 
in the lion's den. Just before you get cast into the furnace, what did they say to the, to the king? Our God is able to save us. Our God is able to take us away. But even if you don't, even if you don't, they trusted God and his faithfulness. And it is especially, 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 brothers and sisters, especially in the times of trial and tribulation that we, that we draw nearer to God in his, in his faithfulness. It is in trials and tribulations that his comforts, that his help, that his sustenance, that he, his encouragement, that his providence is clearly seen. And as I mentioned just quickly, this passage teaches us that we uh, are not to mistake God's promises of deliverance, God's promises in his word of help and of supply with, with, uh, with excuses to be inactive or to be uh, foolish in our actions. God's promises in no way diminish our responsibility to be obedient and to be wise in our actions, to carry out our duties and our obligations with wisdom and prudence. So often is the case in, in, in uh, Calvinistic circles, in, in, in some people that want to pass on a veneer of ultra-spirituality that they actually are being fatalist. So uh, where will be, will be. God will see to it. That's not how we act. That's not how the Bible calls us to, to, uh, to be uh, living in this world. We're not fatalists. We believe that we have a God who is in sovereign control of everything. But that he ordains the means. And he has told us what to do. So let us not be remiss of our duties. On the contrary, if God has determined to promise to save you, as Calvin says, this confidence should encourage and cheer us so that we may not neglect any of our own duties. We do not know how to reconcile these things fully. I, I grant that. It's a paradox. I've said, if you were to dig deep, it's like you, you're, fi you're finding that, uh, that there is a mystery between the, the divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But those things are true both and equally in Scripture. And Scripture brilliantly and perfectly harmonizes it. And finally, lastly, let us note... That Paul's service was fruitful in the midst of tribulation. Are you trialed? Are you weary and heavy laden? Are you in the midst of a tempest and a storm? Be of good cheer. You can take those burdens, cast them upon God. But be a good cheer as well, because this is the place where so often Christ's people, God's people, are most useful and profitable. This is the place where we actually shine most brilliantly. Most, this is the place where we actually 
make a difference from, to this secular, secular world. So don't lose hope. Ask the Lord, how is it that you want me to put this trial, this tribulation into action? In encouraging my brother and sister, in test witnessing to my unbelieving friends and family, how can I use this? Paul, in the midst of this shipwreck, he effectively became the, the, chap, the chaplain of that ship. Everyone was, at one, at the, by the end, everyone's looking to him like, Paul, tell us what to do. Even the soldiers, even the centurion, and I'm sure by the time they arrived at the seashore, even the sailors. Because this man knows God. Because this man has been with God. If you're trial and if you're if you're facing tribulation, ask yourself, ask God, how is it that you want me to put this, this into good use for your glory and honor? Don't be like the sailors, be like Paul. And if you're not a Christian, You need salvation, just like those sailors needed physical salvation from the, from the tempest that surrounded them. You are spiritually, spiritually you are in this tempest and you need a plank. You don't know how to swim, you're hopeless, you have no hope of doing it by your own strength. You need a plank. What if I told you that Christ is that plank? What if I told you that Christ is that plank? He will save you. He will save you because he bore the sins of his people. He died to save his people. And I'll say this in, respectfully. It, he is the plank that you need to hold on for your dear life. Do you trust him, his promise, when he says that? All who come to me will in no way cast out. Ask anyone, any one of the Christians here. They will say they held on to that plank once they understood their need. And they will even say more. That plank, that plank that bore me back then still bears me today. Do you trust God's word enough to cast your life upon it? That's a question for all of us, actually. Not just for Unbelievers, that's the question for all of us. Do we tr trust God's promises enough to cast all our lives upon it? Do you? Do I? Do we trust? This hymn that we will sing, George New Newmark, I think we have a, f a few other hymns by him in our, in our hymn books. But we... I'm, the name Catherine Winkworth, the translator, you, you certainly know. It was written in the 1640s, uh, I believe 1640, that's the... And uh, let me tell you something about him. He was a young man. He was setting out to go to university. This is historical fact. He, he can pick up a biography and, and read this. He was setting out on his way to university, and in those days things were much more dangerous than than they are today. I know, shocking, but they were. Uh, there was no police in the streets. Uh, 
uh, especially in between cities. So as he was in the woods traveling to, to university, bandits, thugs, came upon him. They stole everything he had, the, the money he had, even I think the prayer book he had with him. They took everything. And Newmark now was unable to continue with the life that he was setting out to do. He wanted to go to university to study. And now, what is going to be of my life? He, he asked. He tried to find a job as a tutor. He couldn't. He was anxious. He was suffering. He was, he was uh, filled with anxiety, moans, and sighs. And in recalling this incident, years later, he wrote this, this hymn. Listen to the words of the first burden. If thou but suffer, God to guide thee. It's old English to say, or an old way of saying, if, if, thou, if you would allow God to guide you, and hope in him through all your ways, he'll give you strength whatever comes beside thee, and bear thee through evil, the evil days. Who trusts in God's unchanging love, builds on a rock that not can move. And then, look at ver just verse 2. Well, we'll we're going to sing the, the seven verses. So, but let's, What can ang these anxious cares avail you? These never-ceasing moans and sighs. What can it help if thou bewail thee over each dark moment as it flies? Our cross and trials do but press the heavier for our bitterness. You know what he's saying there? The bitterness. The bitterness. The unbelieving, unbelieving bitterness was only adding to his burden. It was, it was only pressing heavier. We have crosses to take. He's not denying it. We have trials to face. He's not uh, dismissing it. But our bitterness, our unbelief, Cause him to become ever so much heavier. But those who have faith in Christ Jesus, those who, of us who have God's word and his promises, we have some, something so much better. We have a God unto whom we can cast all our cares, unto whom we can humble ourselves before, 